throughout this 50th anniversary year here at Christ United Methodist Church. Uh, every month we are highlighting a, a different aspect of our identity as a congregation. In January, we talked about our emphasis on growth, uh, especially when it comes to continued learning along each of our spiritual journeys. We brought in a guest speaker, Dr. Lisa Miller, and we had an accompanying sermon series uh, inspired by her book, The Awakened Brain. And then in February, we talked about our focus on scripture, uh, which of course reveals to us what we need to know about our relationship with God. We continued our annual tradition of covering an entire book of the Bible. In February this year, that was the book of Esther. This month, our focus is on the fact that we are a spiritual church, which is to say we are a community of faith that seeks ongoing spiritual renewal, which of course is the, the perfect thing to highlight during this season of Lent during this 40-day season of preparation for our most important holiday, Easter, uh, during uh, this season in which we are uh, every week talking about the concepts of Lent, which we'll get to in a second. Today is the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent. That's the fourth of six Sundays in the season of Lent, a season that, uh, if you ask me, starts to feel really long right about now every year. And that, that kind of reminds me of something. So I've been a runner since middle school. By the time I got to high school, I was pretty serious about it. Um, I went to a small high school in Maryland. I graduated with about 120 kids. Um, and so that meant that if you wanted to participate in a sport, you certainly could. We had spots on the team. So uh, I ran cross country, I ran indoor track, I ran outdoor track. I subscribed to Runner's World magazine as a kid. I had these motivational running posters on the walls of my bedroom. When I was in the Navy, when we were not at sea, I continued to be uh, pretty serious about my running. And one year, while our ship was under construction in Maine, a buddy and I uh, had time to train for a marathon. The one that worked in the ship schedule was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, a marathon that just coincidentally is also celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Now back then, um, there was no internet to research a race, right? And so you had to rely on the printed material from whoever organized the race. The course description said that the, the Harrisburg Marathon was flat and fast. And that is exactly what you're looking for when you're running 26.2 miles. And so my buddy and I signed up, we trained for months, uh, we made hotel reservations and we drove down from Maine to Pennsylvania one weekend in November of 1994. <clears throat> if you're a runner, uh, and especially if you've ever trained for a marathon, you know that there is this thing called the wall in a marathon. That happens around mile 20 or so, that's about 80% of the way through a race. Most marathon training plans max out at 20 miles, uh, both to prevent overtraining and because, as the thinking goes, if you've run that far, how hard could it be to run the last six miles? Hard, <laughs> hard. <laughs> so because most runners never, or at least very rarely, run more than 20 miles at a time, there's this psychological aspect to the wall. But there's also a physical aspect. By 20 miles, the glycogen in your muscles, that's your stored energy, is usually depleted. Uh, you can help avoid this by eating a banana during the race, but that's much easier said than done. And back then, sports nutrition had not developed um, those little sports gels that we have today that you can consume on a run to prevent um, hitting the wall. But this buddy and I had trained hard, uh, and we had no small measure of that sort of military bravado that laughs in the face of physical challenges. And we figured that it would be, you know, mind over matter 
uh, when it came to hitting the wall. And then to top it all off, the weather that weekend was perfect. It was November in Pennsylvania. It was in the high 40s. It was, it was a bit overcast. I mean, it was perfect for a race of that length. And so uh, when the gun went off to begin the race at the starting line, I was just a little bit overconfident about how the next 26.2 miles were going to progress. So the first six miles were a breeze. Uh, the next six were fine. We hit the, the half marathon mark in, in really good shape. We had run a, a half marathon in Bar Harbor, Maine in September. It was gorgeous. Uh, after that, though, we were in new race territory, uh, the farthest I'd ever run in an organized running event in more than a decade of you know, relatively competitive running. It was exhilarating. Um, but then came mile 20. At mile 20, the very mile that marathon runners dread, <laughs> the course turned off of the city streets and into a park. Now, neither of us remembered that particular detail from the course map that we had seen and studied for months, but we were excited to be um, on some softer trails for a while, giving our, our feet a break from running on the concrete. Excited, that is, until we, we rounded a corner and we saw the hill. <laughs> or I should say the first hill. The, fir the first hill of a three-mile section of the course that was most decidedly not flat or fast. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I violated what I thought was the third commandment uh, multiple times over the course of those three miles. By mile 23, I thought I was going to die. Or at the very least, I thought that my legs would, would absolutely not move another step. But mercifully, the, the park section of the course ended. I made it all the way in to the end of the 26.2-mile course, and I stumbled away from that experience with two very valuable lessons. First, always expect the wall because it is very real and you'll hit it eventually. And second, you can indeed get through it one sometimes painful step at a time. So why the running metaphor, you might ask? Well, the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent every year is often when I hit the wall because Lent can feel like a, a bit of a spiritual marathon. Um, this is week four of a five-week sermon series. We're 80% of the way there. This is the only time every year we plan a five-week sermon series because the season is long. By comparison, uh, today would be the last Sunday of Advent, that season of preparation for Christmas. But even when we're done with this five-week sermon series, we still have two weeks to go because the Sunday after that is Palm Sunday, and of course, that's a week before Easter, all of which is to say, if you have committed to giving up something for Lent or adding a spiritual discipline during the season of Lent, even though we are four weeks in, you still have a ways to go <laughs> to Easter. The only thing to do, spiritually speaking, is to put one foot in front of the other as we continue our journey through the Ten Commandments. This week we are covering numbers seven and eight. Uh, this is a brief reading. Exodus chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Exodus. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, we're, we're keeping it light on this fourth Sunday of Lent. <laughs> Now, something to keep in mind when uh, reading and reflecting on the Ten Commandments is the way they're organized. 
The first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. So number one, you shall have no other gods. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Uh, Number three, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of God. And number four, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And we talked about these first four commandments the first two weeks of this series. They're all about making God a priority in our lives, the first priority in our lives, and then and then keeping it that way. Then the next six commandments are all about our relationships with each other. So last week, Stephanie covered numbers five and six, honor your father and mother, and you shall not murder. It's interesting, I think, and probably not surprising that the first, the first four commandments uh, give a lot more explanation. Uh, they use a lot more words than the next six. In fact, the first four commandments take 11 verses to explain, and they give us quite a bit of um, theology to think about, which I think makes sense. Our relationship with God is the foundation of our lives. It deserves significant airtime. Our two commandments for today, on the other hand, seem pretty straightforward. They're very terse. Uh, They get a grand total of nine words, not verses in the English translation, and they they seem like common sense, right? They seem like no-brainers for a a life of decency and integrity, let alone a life of faith and discipleship. And yet, centuries after God gave the ten to Moses on Mount Sinai, when Jesus preached what was to become his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, He, as he had a way of doing, took these seemingly straightforward commandments and raised the expectations. Uh, We'll read about that in our second text for today, which is the Gospel of Matthew. These are verses 27 through 30. Listen again, friends, for God's word. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Amen. Again, keeping it light on the fourth Sunday in Lent. So let me say here um, that the gospel, the good news, and particularly our United Methodist understanding of the good news leads with grace, okay? That means the, the unconditional, the unearned, the unearnable love and mercy and forgiveness of God, which means that uh, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter what we may struggle with, God loves us unconditionally so that there's always this open invitation to turn back to God when we need to. That's the literal meaning of repentance, and it's one of the main theological emphases of Lent. Our, our hymns this morning are about that. Um, the, theo- the theology of the Ten Commandments has a lot to do with that. What Jesus is saying here is that the simple prohibition on adultery is only the starting place of faithful living. Don't do that, of course. But Jesus raises the bar on the seventh commandment just as he does in all areas of our lives. You have heard, he says, quoting something in the law, often the Ten Commandments, but I say to you, he says, explaining what the life of discipleship looks like in practice. So last week, uh, Stephanie talked about Jesus saying, you have heard it said, 
you shall not murder. But I say to you, don't even insult your brothers or sisters. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies. And this week, it's, uh, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, do not even objectify your fellow human beings. And if that was a challenge in the first century, how much more so is it a challenge today in, in the internet age when objectification is too often the norm and is, and is sometimes inescapable? When God, uh, what God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai and therefore to us in the Ten Commandments is an essential and foundational set of do's and don'ts that have long shaped the way we relate to God and each other. They're essential. What God gave to us through Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is a new way of thinking about those relationships. When it comes to the seventh and eighth commandments, you have heard the basics, Jesus says, uh, the things we should avoid. So he's specifically talking about adultery, but we're also talking about stealing today. We've talked about murder. There's other things in the top 10. These are the things you should avoid. It is certainly good and important and right to avoid vice and sin. And if we are struggling with some vice or sin, then by all means, this is the perfect season of the church year uh, to give that area of our lives the attention it deserves. But I say to you, Jesus teaches us, that a life committed to following Christ as one of his disciples is about much more than avoiding vice and sin. It's about devoting our lives to loving God and to loving each other in ways that, that reflect our devotion to God. I once heard a, a recovering alcoholic talk about spirituality and transformation in a way that makes a lot of sense to me. He says, um, when you realize that something in your life needs changing, for a while, maybe for a long time, you, you back away from that thing. Now, he was talking about drinking. That was his thing. But this could apply to a lot of things in our lives. It could be um, an addictive behavior of some other kind. It could be an unhealthy relationship. It could be greed and selfishness. I think most of us have, have something at some point in our lives that needs changing. Uh, he said that when you realize that something in your life needs changing for a while, maybe for a long while, you back away from that thing, and that's, a, that's, that's good to do that. You're, you're protecting yourself from whatever that is. It's like, it's like backing away from hell, <laughs> whatever, whatever hell you created for yourself. But at some point, at some point, you turn, and you start walking toward God and you, you start the transformation that God really desires. You stop worrying about doing that, whatever that is for you, and you start becoming who God really wants you to be. And every time I think about the Sermon on the Mount, every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, reflect on the Sermon on the Mount in all of its uh, challenging fullness, um, I, I think about that metaphor. As I think about this high bar that Jesus sets for us as his followers, the difference between backing away from something and turning towards God. Friends, I don't know if, like me, you hit the spiritual wall around this time in Lent every year. And I don't know if, if you hit the spiritual wall from time to time with the incredibly high expectations that Jesus 
sets for us. The, the wall is very real, and all of us hit it eventually. But the good news is that we can get through it one step at a time because God is with us all of our days, inspiring us, empowering us, correcting us when necessary, guiding us always. Our faith promises us that is true, perhaps especially so during the marathon that is Lent. Amen.